Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. He, he had, you know, he had this, this group of folks that he called his household. And these are just like, <laughs> these are just folks who, who were contributing as editors, proofreaders, idea people also taking on their own projects you know someone once told me you know that that their their view of greg was that he was a serial enabler of other people's dreams that's so cool yeah and it's it's very true and and he he actually just you know after i sort of been working with him for really just a couple months he he emailed me and he said hey what do you want to work on more than once You've heard guests on this podcast state that King Arthur Pendragon by Greg Stafford is the only perfect RPG ever made. Today, I sat down with David Larkin, who was a friend of and who worked with Greg Stafford. David is the now the line editor for King Arthur's Pendragon. You're going to love the stories about how he met Greg and the path that brought David to become in charge of this game. We start learning about his love of Call of Cthulhu and basic role-playing, his acclaimed work before he started focusing just on Pendragon, and where the game itself is headed with him at the helm. We then spend most of our time learning why so many people regard the game as the pinnacle of RPG design. We talk about Greg Stafford as a creator and a designer, and wallet warning, fifth edition is out and available okay sit back relax enjoy my time with david okay do you want to search for any traps go ahead and roll oh no successes uh yeah you don't find any traps hi this is greg and this is derek with co-designers of limelight you're currently hanging out on the third floor listening to tabletop talk howdy friends craig here Today, we talked to the line editor for the King Arthur Pendragon RPG at Chaosium, David Larkins. David leads Pendragon, which, by the way, was created by the legendary Greg Stafford. He also writes for Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest, and he has worked on material for Savage Worlds, Prince Valiant, and won the 2020 Any for Best Setting with Berlin, the Wicked City for Call of Cthulhu and Basic Role-Playing. That's a hell of an introduction, David. Welcome to the third floor. Thanks so much for having me, and yes, thank you. You've been freaking busy. I have. I've been a little busy. Yeah. (laughs) So, David, do you have to unfortunately answer the question? I'm sure you've been asked a million times. So we go back in time, long time ago. You never knew you could create a human being or a character on a sheet of paper and roll some dice and play pretend with other people. And then it was put in front of you for the first time. So can we go back to when you first discovered tabletop gaming? Sure thing. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it, because it really it really was a revelation to me. Um you know, as, as a younger kid, I, I remember drawing like guys who were going to, you know, like um, Kung Fu fighters or something. Right. And, and kind of being like, oh, man, I wish there was a way I could figure out who would win. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> little did I know. 
a polyhedral method of <laughs> randomizing. <laughs> if only. No, that would never work. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I came of age. I was, I was a preteen in the late eighties. So I, I didn't, I wasn't there on the ground floor of the golden age of, of role-playing games in those early days. But uh, that meant that I did know about D&D and role-playing games through reputation, right? It was that kind right. of thing. You had friends on the playground whose older siblings played and, you know, uh, oh, it's that game, uh, D&D, it's that game that, uh, you know, teaches you how to worship Satan and kill yourself, you know, and like when you're 11, <laughs> it was that's, that time. <laughs> that's a real selling point when you're 11 years old. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, cool, right? But um, I had a, I had a brief contact with D&D at a slumber party, you know, just with a friend who, who literally read out the solo tutorial in the basic box set at the time. Nice. Uh, and, and I was enchanted by those polyhedral dice. I, I found them to be completely uh, outlandish and something, you know, beyond my, beyond my ken. Uh, but what really got me into it was actually adventure game books. So like, um, you know, like the fighting fantasy series, probably the most well-known of those. But for me, it was the Lone Wolf series uh, by oh, Joe Deaver. Those are so good. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, you know, looking back, it's like, yeah, that was a great introduction because it they were set up like a campaign where you, you'd play the books in sequence and your character would actually carry on through each book and you'd bring your equipment with you and you know there'd be callbacks recurring villains so it really kind of showed me the ropes of like what how a role-playing game worked i didn't even realize at the time you know uh and then around that same time a friend somehow i guess i was probably talking about that DD experience i'd had so a friend of mine thought i had already played DD, so they got me the expert set uh, nice uh, for my birthday and that sat on my shelf for a while, but then we moved and I, you know, was kind of looking at it after packing it up and unpacking it. And that Larry Elmore art really drew me in, you know, and and I was I was starting to really get into like medievalism as well. Like I was really finding myself, uh, you know, enchanted by the imagery of the Middle Ages, um, which, you know, D&D is not hardcore about that. But at the time I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I thought, you know what, let me, you know, I'm going to take the plunge on this. I'm going to go get that basic set, you know. And um, and so what you'll notice here is the the running theme is, you know, I was kind of an autodidact when it came to gaming. I didn't I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have a group that showed me the ropes. I was having to teach myself how to play. Um, you know, I picked up the basic set and, and read through that. And then we moved again. So then I had to find, you know, some gamer friends which took a long time and you know it was it was just kind of this this thing where I, I was like really committed to um to this hobby with before I even started really playing it because I just I like the idea so much you know yeah and um it was really helpful also that my first game store my first local game store was a place called War Games West which was in Albuquerque New Mexico um, they were actually pretty well known at the time because they were also, they weren't just a game store. They were also a distributor, a national distributor. Ah. So they had this giant catalog. I mean, this thing was probably about 120 pages and they, they did it. They did one every quarter, I think. And they had like a national mailing list. You could just sign up for their mailing list. And it was a free catalog and it had everything in it. It had role-playing hmm. games, board games, miniatures, dice, gaming accessories, you name it. And, and not just like lists of the titles, but also they'd, put in descriptions of the games 
So I would just flip through this. And this is way back before the internet, you know, or at least my experience with the internet. And, you know, I would just flip through this thing, you know, just reading all the entries, you know, <laughs> and like, and you know, it's like, I wanted to like unlock the three secret keys of gaming, right? I wanted it to be like RPGs, miniatures, war games, and like board war games, you know, once I've mastered all three, you know, then I'll, I don't know, fight Gary Gygax or something, you know, like, I'll be, I'll be a secret master at that point. So, <laughs> um, so that, that was very helpful to me though, like in terms of introducing, like, like, D&D was my first game like it was for most people, but I very quickly moved on to a bunch of other games because I just saw what was available. And I was like, These, this is amazing, you know. Do you remember, David, what was kind of the next big game for you? A game that uh, either you knew at the time was a big deal or now looking back on it, you realize was a, was a big deal for you. You know, that was that was one of the helpful things also about the War Games West catalog was that sometimes the staff would put in little editorial remarks, you know, so like... Um, uh, Call of Cthulhu yeah. was one. Cyberpunk 2020, they they really uh, pitched that one. But the the second, uh, this kind of speaks to where my mind was at. Um, I went from the D&D Basics set to the second role-playing game I ever bought, uh, like a B. Dalton at the mall, was GURPS. Nice. Because I was like, uh, I read the back cover and I'm like, oh, I can run anything with this game? Oh, that's, I'm into that, you know? <laughs> so... Yeah, nobody. But nobody just buys GURPS. That's that's the big lie. That's the Steve Jackson lie, which is all you need is GURPS and you could just run anything. And then they put out source book after source book. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the thing in my in my naivete. I kind of thought, oh, all I need this is the Rosetta Stone and then <laughs> right. I can buy anything else. So I, I actually bought the Robin Hood giant outlaw campaign from Iron Crown Enterprises that had wow. just come out. This was right after Robin Hood Prince of Thieves came out. So I was all into that. Mm-hmm. And I just thought I could kind of set the two books next to each other and somehow magically <laughs> a campaign would, would present itself to me. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. I still have that Robin Hood book, though. One day. One day I'll run it. <laughs> so, David, when I do these origin stories, um, uh, what often happens or what I often hear is taking a break, right? That at some point you kind of put the books away, you put the miniatures down and you take a couple years off um, and then you come back to it. Did that happen to, with, to you or were you just continuously involved in the hobby? Um, I've been pretty much continuously involved in the hobby. There, there were a couple years there, like after college, where just things, life got in the way, you know, like things were just too hectic um, to really game. But even then, I was still buying books. I was still like going on websites and, you know, whatnot. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been gaming pretty much continuously since 1992. That's pretty <laughs> so. awesome. So. Now, what also happens uh, with people that I have on the show, and it's not a coincidence because of who I have on the show, <laughs> is at some point you go more than just gaming, right? More than just around the table with friends. You start producing content, right? Whether it be blog posts or writing reviews or, you know, creating adventures that are going to extend beyond the table. Did that? When did that happen for you? And do you have a sense of what drove you to, to want to do more than just play? Um, you know, that was actually a little late in coming for me. Um, for for a long time, I was actually pretty pedantic when it came to my gaming. Like, you know, I kind of felt like, oh, the stuff that's in the book is like, that's there for a reason. And it's not really for me to change that around or, yeah, you know, mess with that. Um, and then, you know, gradually, of course, I began to realize like, oh, no, the power was in me all along and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So. A friendship. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the friends we made along the way. Um, but, 
but um, uh, yeah, no, my first venture into that probably was in like in a serious way was in 2008. Although yeah, prior to that, like I would read the uh, game reviews in Dragon Magazine and be like, hmm, game reviewer, that sounds like an interesting job. You know, not really realizing like you can't build a career off reviewing yeah, games. It does not pay well, sir. No, this, is not, <laughs> this is not Siskel and Ebert situation here, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, uh, in 2008 though, I, I, um, I, I just got into this point where I was, I, you know, having trouble sort of, um, uh, uh, sorting out all the all the ideas I had in my head for you know like just wanting to talk about games and you know I had my friends and gaming group and stuff but uh, the, you know that wasn't really enough and and so my wife said well why don't you just start a blog and like just kind of put your stuff out there and I did it like completely without any intention of anybody reading it you know mm -hmm. like I, I just kind of figured like this is just going to be kind of a journal kind of deal where I can just spew out some some thoughts and maybe I'll get a comment from time to time, you know. But um, I think just because it happened to be, it was in the spring of 2008, so that was right when, that was right after Gary Gygax died and the fourth edition D&D was coming out. So that was like pretty much the impetus for the OSR movement right. to start up. And there were a lot of people hopping on blogs at that point and um people just found my blog pretty fast. Like within the first couple of posts, I was suddenly getting comments and link backs and stuff. And, huh. you know, it was like, whoa, okay. You know, like that really kind of opened my eyes. Like, oh, there's this like sort of larger community online that I can interact with, you know, because I've never been much of a forum guy. Right. Uh, like when I would post on forums, it wouldn't get a lot of engagement. But for whatever reason, like blogging just really people resonated with that. So. So I'd be curious, David, I mean, uh, you may not have understood what was driving uh, people to your blog at the time, but, mm -hmm. you know, we're several years past that now. Do you have a sense of looking back on it? What was it about your voice that that resonated with people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I came into it. I, I've been doing uh, freelance writing, you know, um, not gaming related, but just, you know, as a, as a side gig of... Uh, working on like uh, reference books and, and textbooks and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I definitely sharpened my, my writing skills, um, you know, in the years prior to, to starting up that blog. And I think I just had a lot to say, you know, and uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't, there was no, there was no intention behind it. I was, I, you know, I didn't have like a, you know, some kind of uh, strategy of like, Oh, this is going to drive engagement you know, sure. or, or whatever. Uh, yeah. People just seemed to resonate with it, which was cool. Um, and then, you know, there was just this like sort of community of feedback going on. So it, it, you know, it tended to snowball, I think in that way. Uh, I will say that like, although I initially started out posting my thoughts about D and D fourth edition and, and stuff like that, like I very quickly moved on to talking about other games as, you know, is my pattern apparently. Um, <laughs> and then I would notice that like, whenever I post about D and D, I'd get about four or five times the post views that anything yeah. else would draw, but that's just how it is, you know? So. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is, right? It, yeah. Uh, it's, I don't see a reason to argue with it or fight it. Um, yeah, exactly. And quite frankly, uh, my controversial opinion is thank God for D and D and thank God for Watsy buying D and D because I think it's hard to know where our hobby would be today. If those two things didn't happen, right. I, if there I wasn't totally D and D yeah. and if Watsy had not swooped in and literally saved it. But, uh, 
I don't. I just lost my four listeners by saying that out loud. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, guys, um, as as is normal, the Insider Insights series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators, and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, their inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. That's what we're going to do with David today. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about his transition and discovering two games that would be a big part of his life, and that is basic role-playing and King Arthur Pendragon. We'll be right back. Oh, hey, it's me. Um, I'm interrupting this episode, and I hope you're enjoying it, and I bet you're anxious to hear the rest. But before we jump back, I need a favor. Do you know someone who might enjoy this episode? Can you shoot them a quick message or maybe even send them a link to it? Listeners sharing this podcast was the primary reason we almost doubled our audience last year. Also, would you like to see and hear these games in action? Go to the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel and Twitch stream. Our actual plays combine compelling role-playing, character-driven action, and system tutorials. We create great stories while lifting the hood and showcasing the game mechanics. Links to both are in the show notes. Okay, last thing, and I mean it. Have you rated this podcast on your pod platform yet? Maybe even written a short review? It is a simple way for you to be even more awesome than you already are. Okay, now I'm done. Let's jump back and listen to the rest of this episode. So you've got a blog out there. You've got a voice for yourself, right? You've got a place to, to express yourself. Um, and I don't know where this falls timeline wise, but when did you, you already mentioned you played Call of Cthulhu, but when did you come across basic role playing as a system? So that was a little late in coming for me because, um, you know, again, just the vagaries of timing, you know, getting into gaming in the early 90s, um, you know, was a, was a time for Chaosium when RuneQuest, there was a, you know, sort of a RuneQuest renaissance in the early 90s, but I missed that. Yeah. And then RuneQuest kind of went into a long sleep. Um, you know, Stormbringer slash Elric was kind of sunsetting as well. The The... The classic BRP games of the 80s, like Super World and, and so forth, uh, ElfQuest, you know, those just weren't around. So yeah. for me, it was Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, and I loved it. I loved the basic role-playing engine. I loved Call of Cthulhu. But it never really occurred to me that I could take it outside of that game until the, um, two, which is sort of at the same time when I started blogging, the 2008 uh, Gold Book edition of basic role-playing came out which you know sort of consolidated the system back into you know one core book and i saw a you know review of it on youtube and i was just like Whoa. you know <laughs> <laughs> it was like that was the same energy that like propelled me towards picking up the GURPS basic set way back when right like oh it's a universal system and i really like this system i know the system it's flexible like this is everything, you know? So I, I grabbed that gold book pretty much, I think the next day after I saw that review. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, by that point I'd been gaming for 15 years. So it was you yeah. know, kind of funny. So I'd be curious because, I, so my story involved GURPS as well. I was a huge GURPS guy for a long period of time um, and a, a big fan of Call of Cthulhu. 
but I never fell into basic role playing. Right. So obviously I played it because I was playing Call of Cthulhu. But for you, I'd be interested. Um, what's the difference for you? So why basic role playing versus versus GURPS? Or are they just two sides of the same coin? And there's no reason to to make a decision between the two. It's just whatever you love more. Or does one offer something the other doesn't for you? Yeah, I you know, for me, like GURPS, uh, I I did really like that system for a long time. And it was mostly a problem with trying to sell it to my group <clears throat> in terms of like, you know, they would be like, well, why, why should we play, you know, GURPS Horror? We've got Call of Cthulhu. Why should we play GURPS Fantasy? We've got AD&D, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was always kind of trying to sell it. And I didn't, I didn't play it very often. And then I kind of found that once I... Once I did manage to to run it, it just wasn't it wasn't exactly what I wanted. You know, mm. um, I think I you know I don't have anything against it. I don't think it's a bad system or anything like that. You know, it's just there there was something to it that like you know, especially with the you know la latter day materials. You know, you'd, you'd see a stat block for an NPC and it would just be this page long thing. Yeah, you know. Yep. And what I liked about basic role playing more was the simplicity of it. You know, like it's just it's much see, because by this point, this is when I'm getting into uh, discovering that RPGs can be a toolkit and yeah. I can like have fun with that and I can really get under the hood, so to speak. And you can do that with GURPS, of course. You know, I mean, yep. GURPS is all about facilitating that. But for BRP, I just found it to be easier. You know, I didn't have to worry as much about uh you know, balance or, mm -hmm. you know, cause, partly because BRP is just got like balance. What's balance? You know, <laughs> you're right. Uh, if something's too powerful for your characters, it's too powerful for your characters. Like, I don't know what to right. tell you. Right. Get the hell out of the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think with, with BRP, what I found was like, just, it felt, it felt uh, like there was more freedom there for me to tinker yeah. with it. Well, and you bring up a point that I guess I hadn't really thought about is I think it's an easy argument that BRP is more approachable for other people, mm. strictly based off of how easy. I mean, just about anybody that, you know, past fifth grade math can understand the percentile system, mm -hmm. um, whereas GURPS takes a little, you know, the what is it? The 3D18, 3D6 system takes mm -hmm. a little bit to kind of get your head around. But I can put Call of Cthulhu in front of somebody and say, this is your stat. You roll under. If your stat's 40, it means you have a 40% chance of succeeding. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And, yeah. and they can just go from there. I don't think I'd actually thought about that. Um, the other thing that I have found with BRP is, how do I put this? It, it's, so GURPS, everybody plays their own version of GURPS, right? GURPS can be as simple or as crunchy as you want it. Yeah. It's got all kinds of different phases in there. Whereas I think BRP just has a nice little sweet spot. Like this is, this is the system. And you don't have you don't need as many wrenches with BRP. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't need. It's a little sense. bit more ready to run. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, GURPS is like a machine that you can you can fine tune. Yep. You know, but but BRP is just like hop in, let's go. You know, I think it's a great way to put it. I think that's a great way to put it. So, at what point did you first come across Pendragon? So Pendragon, actually, I did come across um, back in the 90s. So that was kind of the second Chaosium game that I that I encountered. Um, that was in a review in Dragon Magazine again um, uh, for the supplement, the Spectre King, which is a collection of, of scenarios. And um, I actually I, actually, <laughs> I have a hard copy of that that I had Greg sign, even though um, 
even though he didn't work on the book because I just said, Greg, this is the <laughs> book that got me into the game, so I need you to sign it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one you didn't write. Would you sign it Would for me? Would you sign it, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really funny. And he was like, okay. <laughs> but, no, the, the thing is, and, and I, I should really go back and see who wrote that review because I, I owe my current job to them because yeah. what they did is they used they obviously were a fan of the game and they used the review as an opportunity to sell pendragon uh because they just talked about what an awesome game it was and um and then they kind of talked about the scenarios but it was mostly about like look how cool this game is and you know here i am you know i i've had this childhood love of the middle ages i've continued into my adolescence um reading history books about the middle ages primary sources even you know literature uh, you know, I read this review, I'm like, oh my God, like, this is it. This is, I am the target audience for this book, you know? And so at some point after that, I was able to pick up the fourth edition, uh, which is the big kind of like omnibus edition, right? It's like this big trade paperback that collected a bunch of stuff from the previous editions into one, one tome essentially, uh, which turned out to be a bit of a tall order for me to absorb, Right. Yeah. So it took me a long time to finally read through the book and then think about it and internalize it. And then, you know, it was one of those games you have on your shelf that you think very highly of, but you never actually <laughs> play, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I started running Pendragon in a, in a concerted fashion in 2006. So this was 15 years of me sure. running Pendragon regularly now. So at what point, David, does do you connect with Chaosium, right? So um, you've got this blog. Uh, you're obviously a fan of their games. Um, mm -hmm. That's established at this point. Um, you have done freelance writing, but it sounds like that's outside of the of the tabletop industry that that was happening. Um, what is the first connect? So when does the conversation start? So basically what happened was, um, you know, partly like, you know, as I said, like it took me a while to kind of come into this idea that I could, do my own stuff with 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 games in terms of writing material and, and stuff like that but even then like with blogging it was very much like a fan based kind of thing i was like oh i'm a lifestyle hobbyist you know i'm just you know this is my thing you know and you know my my dad's an artist he's a he's a painter and uh and and graphic artist and um so i grew up in a household where i kind of had a front row seat to how difficult the life of a creative can be yeah uh, you know, sometimes it's really good and other times there's like, you're dealing with other egos or you're, you just can't find work or whatever it may be, you know, or you have to compromise and take jobs you don't want, you know, just yep. to pay the bills. So, you know, I kind of told myself, I don't want that. You know, there's all this kind of, um, social pressure around like, well, don't do it. Don't turn something you love into, into work or, you know, you'll ruin it, you know, and that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Money ruins everything, you know, and that sort of thing, um, which it certainly can. I mean, there's there's that's not wrong, but um, I kind of realized that I was using that as a crutch. You know, I um, I had a situation in 2012 where I basically had a, a medical emergency that was literally a near death experience for me. And I, I remember even kind of joking when I was recovering from that, like, oh, watch this. I'm going to quit my job and start a whole new career. <laughs> And I did. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it was just one of those things where you kind of reevaluate your life and you go, yeah. you know, like maybe I should be doing like maybe I'm just making excuses and I should actually try something interesting here, you know. 
So, um, so I did. And, you know, I, I, I went about it in a very methodical way, you know, just kind of putting feelers out there. So my connection with Chaosium actually came after I first connected with Greg Stafford, you know, which um, through non through Pendragon, basically, which was not Chaosium at the time. Right. right. So but Greg was also involved in Chaosium. So he was mm -hmm. sort of the bridge for me, took me over into Chaosium. So what was your so let's talk about that connection with Greg then. So what, what was that connection that that led you to Chaosium? 2014, I think. Um, well, okay, so first of all, I had had this idea brewing to do a Berlin source book for Call of Cthulhu. But at the time, I had, I had sent a query letter into Chaosium to do it as one of their manuscript or uh, monograph series that they were doing at the time, which was basically just facilitating you self-publishing your own Call of Cthulhu material. Right. And I never got a response um, because this was a different Chaosium. This was a different structure, yep. you know, uh, at the time. And so I put some other feelers out and started to get some like positive interest from, from a licensee. Uh, but then that didn't end up going anywhere, but it was enough for me to be like, okay, I think I'm on the right track here. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is feeling good. So this was back in 2014. So I proceeded to like, you know, kind of look for other opportunities. You know, once you open yourself up to opportunities, right. You kind of see opportunities as they present themselves. Right. And so there was a thing, there was a, there used to be a Pendragon forum and I was just popping in there one day and, and Greg was pretty active on there. And he said, uh, he said, Hey, I'm looking for proofreaders for, uh, this project I'm working on. I can't pay anything, but if you want, you know, you can just proofread a chapter or two. So I raised my hand. So that's my initial connection with him, uh, working on a, an Atlas of Pendragon locations, uh, which, um, actually we're hoping to eventually publish, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which would be kind of funny since I was the first project right. I worked on with him. Um, but, uh, but then also on my blog, I had written up um, like reports. Uh, basically, I, I ran a one-on-one -on -one, uh, um, campaign with my wife running her through the Great Pendragon campaign. And, and so I did session reports and I, I really kind of let myself go on those. And like they kind of turned into these very lengthy uh, pseudo-narrative you know, write-ups, you know, that's cool. And, uh, and you know, yeah, they, they, they had a, a dedicated following of readers and turns out that one of the people who was working with Greg at the time had actually gotten into Pendragon through my write-ups, wow. uh, and then ended up connecting with Greg first. And then just totally randomly, I messaged him on the forums. Cause I, there was like a spreadsheet he'd done. I wanted the spreadsheet. And he's just like, I got to get you in touch with Greg, you know, and I was already a little bit in touch with him, but that really like that, that put me directly in touch with him. So it was, it was again, like this kind of serendipity sort of situation going on, you know? So you, you start talking with Greg and, mm -hmm. and have that connection. Obviously your love of, of Pendragon and what you produced uh, for the game helps facilitate that. Um, Greg is doing stuff for Chaosium as well. So when, when does that handshake uh, happen then? So um, Greg brought me in like he, he had, you know, he had this, this group of folks that he called his household. And these are just like <laughs> these are just folks who who were contributing as editors, proofreaders, idea people also taking on their own projects. You know, someone once told me, you know, that, that their 
their view of Greg was that he was a serial enabler of other people's dreams. That's so cool. Yeah. And it's, it's very true. And, and he, he actually just, you know, after I sort of been working with him for really just a couple months, he, he emailed me and he said, Hey, what do you want to work on? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I can just, so I, now I've got this picture of you getting that email and just staring at the screen and going, yeah. I, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want me to. <laughs> I'll wash your car. <laughs> I will sleep on your floor. <laughs> so what was your answer? So, so I, I, he had, there were a couple projects that were sort of like had been moved to the back burner. And one of them was a spinoff game of Pendragon that, that is set in, you know, uh, feudal Japan. Mm. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. I'd like to take a crack at that you know, take up the torch on that one because it originally had a, a Japanese, uh, you know, project lead who, um, you know, basically the um, Fukushima quake happened and, oh. and it, it derailed, you know, he lived in the north of Japan. So it really kind of derailed things for him. Um, and, and, you know, the funny thing is that Greg didn't show me any of that guy's notes initially. He just kind of said, you know, go forth and come up with your own ideas. And then when I later saw the notes, it was almost identical to, to his pitch, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, I kind of, that was in 2015. I, I sort of took up that project as sort of a journeyman piece, you know, just to show him what I could do. And, and, um, that will be coming out eventually too. So <laughs> <laughs> there is, there is much that has never been released by David Larkins. <laughs> a lot of things in the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> well, so David, when all of this is happening, how are you feeding yourself? Um, so are you, had you switched, d pulled the trigger at this point or? So that was right around the time I did pull the trigger. I, I had a full-time job uh, with the local library and you know, I'd been working in public libraries primarily for 10 years. Uh -huh. And so I was just, fortunately, since I had been planning this for three years uh, and, you know, to be perfectly honest, my wife had a steady job with healthcare you know, with health insurance. That helps. So yeah, you know, it's like we, we kind of just ran the numbers and we're like, yeah, okay, I can afford to do this now. And it, it, you know, it was just, that was the time to do it. And so that was actually the first time I ever went to Gen Con was in 2015. And it was basically to meet Greg uh, and, and just see what else was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I flew out there and I found the Chaosium booth first day at Gen Con. And he said, hey, are you going to the what's happening at Chaosium panel tonight? And I said, well, no, I wasn't really planning to. He said, I think you should go. So I'm like, OK. So <laughs> I go to this panel and I was aware that. So this was right around the time that Chaosium had gotten itself into trouble with the Call of Cthulhu Kickstarter. Right. And then, you know, uh, Greg was going to come back and he was going to run the company again, you know, and all that stuff. So I go to this panel and there's these four guys up front. I'm like, who are these guys? You know, and uh, and so they proceed to start talking. Oh, we're the moon design folks. And, you know, we've been working with Greg on RuneQuest and Glorantha stuff. And, you know, uh, and 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 basically uh, we are going to be running the company for Greg. And they they whipped their shirts off and wow. they all had Chaosium t-shirts on underneath. It was very theatrical. Nice. And, uh, and then I proceeded to sit there and listen to them talk about their plans for the company and how they're going to do things differently and how they were going to like, you know, build the company up. And, and I'm like, my God, these guys know what they're talking about. This is amazing, yeah. you know. 
And in particular, Jeff Richard, who's now the creative director of the company, was saying, like, we want pitches, we want ideas, we want to publish your work. So by the time that um, seminar finished up, I think I was in, like, the second or third row. And I pretty much just vaulted over the intervening chairs. <laughs> Stepped on a few kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, and just ran up to Jeff and said, hi, I want to write a Berlin source book for Call of Cthulhu, having no idea that Jeff actually was living in Berlin at the time, married oh, to a German funny. woman, you know, like, uh, and he said, yes, you know, so uh, it took another year to, to, you know, for them to get things going with the company and, and for me to be available, you know, to write it. But yeah, in the meantime, I was just picking up, you know, whatever work I could, but it was yep. definitely one of those things like, you know, you have to be prepared to have some lean years as you're building your career. But at the same time, I knew I had to do it full time or else it wouldn't happen, you know. So you pitched the Berlin book um, and they love it. But mm -hmm. was it just a matter of you, you had proven yourself to Greg at that point so that they said, yes, uh, let, give it to David. David knows what the hell he's doing. Or was there like a sample process? Like, I, I mean, anybody can walk up to Chaosium's booth tomorrow and say, I've got an idea for a, a, an X book. Mm -hmm. But with you, it was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, do you, why is that? Yeah, it was Greg. It was 100% yeah. Greg. He, you know, he's, he was my mentor, you know, and, yep. and he absolutely supported my work. He had seen what I was capable of doing with the, you know, the work I was doing on Pendragon and, and, you know, he basically went to the Chaosium guys and Mike Mason as well and, and just said, you know, give this guy a shot. He's going to do it. You know? That's cool. So, yeah, that's cool. So you get done with Gen Con. Um, mm -hmm. I would imagine flying high at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a good Gen Con. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. Um, so I got I actually I need to take a step back. Why Berlin? So why was this nugget in your head? Why was this what you wanted to write for Chaosium? So this actually ties in with GURPS, funny enough. Um, oh. the So after buying the GURPS basics, that the next book I bought was GURPS Horror. Nice. And GURPS Horror, uh, in that edition, second edition, I believe, um, had some chapters in it that basically patterned themselves on the sort of tripartite Call of Cthulhu approach of having, you know, Gaslight, Jazz Age, Modern Day, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, they had, you know, chapters on that and then there was a fourth section that was or no no this was in the 20s chapter that's right so in the 20s chapter it was saying like okay so new england is kind of your classic setting you know or like you could do and they're like here are some other ideas here are some other places you could set your horror games and there was a little sidebar on weimar germany and it said you know this is an underutilized setting that has a lot of potential and i'm reading this as like a 12 year old going Oh, okay. I'll keep that in mind. And, you know, I don't know. There's <laughs> just from an early age, I've always been interested in German as a culture and as yeah. you know, German language and then German culture. And, you know, um, so I was like, okay, cool. I have no idea. You know, like, I mean, yeah. I didn't really know anything about Weimar Germany or, you know, wicked Berlin or any of that kind of stuff. It's just that, you know, there was a little, it was literally just a sidebar. It's probably 200 words, you know, but it's stuck in my head. You know, and then years and years later, um, working in libraries, actually, you know, I saw some some cool reference books on 20s Berlin and I went, you know, maybe I should run a campaign. Maybe I should maybe not, I should get back to this. And then it just started started first as this idea for a campaign. And then it just sort of like, oh, maybe it could be a series of blog articles. Oh, maybe it could be a manuscript. Maybe it could be a book, you know. So 
you get off the plane home from Gen Con. <laughs> um, nothing is written, but it sounds like some of it kind of was right. That you had been dabbling with this a little bit. You had you'd had a campaign. It sounds like you'd ran games in this setting before. But, I actually hadn't. No, I hadn't run anything. Oh, okay. I, just, I, I had gotten as far as like checking out a bunch of books and taking some notes. And that was about <laughs> it. You know, I, I knew that there was a potential there. That was about right. as far as I'd gotten. So yeah. where do you start, David? I mean, like you sit down at a word processor and it's blank. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like I said, it, it took another year. It took until the next Gen Con, actually, where I, I had a sit down meeting with Mike Mason and um, and that was like the actual like, OK, let's get you under contract and get you writing on this. And, you know, I, I, I had some ideas. I, I knew there were certain themes that were presenting themselves with this setting that we could explore that hadn't been in any, in any Call of Cthulhu books before. But, um, yeah, I really I kind of had to come up with like some scenarios like out of nothing, you know, and, and like it was one of those deals where it's like afterwards, you know, you're like huh, okay, now I have to actually write the thing right, <laughs> right, and play test it and do all that stuff. Okay, okay. So I had some really great meetings with Mike and also Jeff. You know, being in Berlin, he was able to offer some insights on that. He knew quite a bit about the history of that period. So it was, you know, like a meeting with Mike at Gen Con, a Zoom meeting with Jeff once I got home, um, you know, a couple pages of notes and, 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 and off I went. And, you know, I was... I was still pretty green by that point. So I was Googling how to write a book proposal, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, like uh, it was really helpful because, you know, it's yeah. like finding, you know, okay. So I, you know, I work up this 10 page outline, you know, and I, I start like taking some of those old notes that I'd taken and throwing those in there and, you know, just kind of building out from there. And, and, and then the, the really fun thing about writing for call of Cthulhu is like, you just it's it it mirrors the experience of being a Call of Cthulhu investigator because you end up peeling back the onion layers, right. you know, and 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 finding out more and more as you go. And so, you know, really like I had some basic ideas, and then as I started to refine those ideas, I would find more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. You know, do you have a sense? And it, and, it, and there may not have been this moment, so just tell me, Craig, there what this didn't happen. Um, do you have a sense of when it all clicked like do you have a was there a time where you you figured something out you'd pieced it together where you're like holy shit i'm like like this is gonna be this is gonna work and it might be actually be pretty good right um, <laughs> yeah did, do you have a sense of if that happened as a moment or was it just a gradual thing or did it never happen and it just turned out to be good i i think it's when i was working on the first scenario um the first scenario has a lot of um, real life stuff in it. It's, it's got a lot of characters who actually, you know, existed and um, events that actually happened at the time that the nice. scenario was set. And it was like, <laughs> there was a moment where I was doing, I was doing a write up on a scene, try to avoid spoilers, but there's, there's a, there's a scene where um, the investigators have to go to an apartment complex that a uh, serial killer used to live at. And, I found a graduate level paper online where somebody had actually done a write-up on the residents of that apartment building. My God. Who were living there at the time. And I was just like, everything is just presenting itself to me at this wow. point. You know, like, 
you know, because from there I was able to like, you know, sort of combine some of them and, you know, fictionalize them enough, but, you know, turn them into some NPCs that the investigators could then talk to, you know? So it, it was just like, yeah, things were like really clicking. I remember actually having a conversation about that where I was just like, it, it was one of those things where it's like, I was having trouble sleeping because it was just, it was so coming so thick and fast, you know, and, 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 and it's just, there was, my brain was just on fire, you know? So I was oh, just like, great. this is happening. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So you finish the damn thing. Um, it gets out and then the 2020 any nominations come out. Um, and, and like most people, you know, their first big work, it gets nominated for an any, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> w- what was that experience like when those nominations came out and you saw your book in there? You know, honestly, like by the time I was done with the manuscript and the play testing and everything else, um, I was feeling really positive about it. And then when, you know, a couple of years later, it finally came up in the production pipeline and, and um, Mike was generous enough to involve me even in some of the art direction, you know, nice. like conceptualizing the cover design and, you know, just some other some other ideas. So and then seeing the art rolling in, particularly Loic's amazing cover, you know, um i was just like i think this could win some awards you know like i mean i just i just it wasn't an ego thing at all i was just like this is this is really good (laughs) you know like this you know and 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 once i kind of like accepted that it was like you know if it hadn't won any awards it would have been fine you know honestly like but it was really nice for the recognition and it, it it won at the uk game expo as well which was also great and you know but it was a little, it was a little bittersweet, honestly, because like, it felt like the capper to this journey I had been on. Yeah. You know, because I mean, I, I first pitched the book in 2015 and it won in 2020. So it's a five yeah. year process, you know, which is also something I would just say to anyone who's looking to get into game writing is like, you have to accept this is a very slow industry, you know, because publishing takes a while. It takes yep. a while for something to come up in the pipeline and then it takes a while to go through the production process, you know? So, but it, it had been something I'd been living with for, for five years. And that really felt like kind of the capper on that project, you know? And, and then it was just kind of like, even though I was already on to other things by that point, I was just like, Oh yeah, that's done. Okay. <laughs> so that's the bittersweet part is that it was uh, five years of your life. And it's just like, Oh, I guess that's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a good ending. It's a great Easter ending. Right? I couldn't have asked for a better ending. It, it was kind of, you know, it's like the end of the return of the King, you know, you just yeah. oh, nice. bidding farewell to the hobbits. And then, then, then after that, we get the three, three hobbit movies, right? <laughs> Let's not talk about those. So, um, and this might be a hard question to answer. Why did it win? So what is it? What was the reaction? What were the reviews? What, what did people find in that work that you think clicked with them? Right. So we understand what clicked with you, but why did it click with so many other people? That's a great question. Um, I mean, my philosophy when it comes to creating stuff is I write for myself. I write a, I write something that I would want to see on the shelves. Yeah. I'm not trying to chase what I think other people want. And, you know, so really I can only speak for myself and it's tremendously flattering and gratifying to know that, you know, my vision or what I wanted to put out there resonated with so many people. Like, that's great. You know, um, I'm all about letting the work speak for itself, you know, and, and to the point sometimes I think I don't speak enough about, <laughs> about, about some of the, some of the elements of my work, but um, 
you know, I, I, I very much wanted it to be something that um, was going to be off the beaten path for folks, you know, who wanted to do something a little different with their with their Cthulhu games. I love Lovecraft Country, Arkham, Miskatonic University, all that good stuff. You know, it's an amazing body of work that's so much, it's a, it's a great sandbox to play in, you know. And so what I wanted to do was create another sandbox for people to play in. I wanted a, I wanted a city that, that could be used multiple times for multiple campaigns, you know. And so maybe there's that element, you know, where folks are just kind of picking up on that, that depth that I was trying to put in there. Because I didn't want this to just be a one and done kind of situation, you know. Well, and it's it's what's neat about it for me, uh, David, is that you know the the Lovecraft Lovecraft Country, the setting, the default setting for Call of Cthulhu is a very interesting time, mm-hmm. and it um it it, it, it in, within the timeline of history, it's interesting. What was happening then is very interesting. It's a, it is an interesting place to play. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's long ago enough that we can make it fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a little while. It's been a yeah. hundred years. Yeah. Um, and I, it's funny because until I came across your book, I don't think I realized, well, shit's pretty interesting over there in Berlin about this time, too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it's funny to me because, you know, Weird War is something that I had goofed around with and stuff. And but I just never thought about going back five years and and mm. looking at what was happening at that time. So hats off to you for for, uh, you know, even thinking that that could be something that would translate so well. So, guys, we're going to take uh, another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about uh, Pendragon. And uh, we're going to also talk, we've talked about Greg Stafford. I want to talk a little bit more about him. Those of you who have been following this Insider Insight series know that Mr. Stafford's name has come up more than a few times. And uh, it'll be really neat to talk to, uh, talk to David about that. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. No one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to a coupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes.
So like I mentioned before the break, um, Mr. Stafford has come up more than a few times. And uh, there's two, two things. Uh, one, uh, one of my favorite quotes, um, and I think uh, it may have been Mr. John Wick that said this. I can't remember. Sometimes it's attributed to him. But um, he says, anytime you think you have come up with an original idea uh, as you're creating a your role playing game, you're guaranteed that Greg Stafford came up with it 15 years ago. Yeah, that's John. Um, that yeah, it is John. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing that we have heard multiple times from our guests is the only perfect role-playing game created is Pendrive. And that has been said more than once by by a couple different people. So I guess, David, you you having such a close connection both to Greg and to the game, um, for somebody like me who didn't know Greg and was not the was not around and involved when you know Greg was putting out just, just this amazing groundbreaking work um do you have a sense of what it was so what what is it that greg was doing that influenced an entire generation of tabletop role-playing game creators so greg was one of the first people to really grasp the uh potential that was within role-playing games um in 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 a lot of different ways uh, both in terms of setting and also mechanics. And so what he was able to do with Pendragon was something that really didn't become more common in, in, in RPG game design until literally 20 years later. Uh, he, he anticipated uh, story gaming by decades. Um, Pendragon does what a lot of story games, a lot of indie games do nowadays, and a lot of mainstream games do as well, which is design the mechanics around the experience that the game is trying to deliver at the table, which seems like a no-brainer when you say it out loud like that, but that really wasn't the case at the time, you know? And the thing, like, as much as I was into medieval history and, and, you know, Excalibur was one of my favorite movies and all this other stuff. When I started running Pendragon, I didn't know a whole lot about the Arthurian canon. Um, and I, and I like to, I like to say that just, you know, on record as much as possible, because I want people to understand that you don't have to be an Arthurian expert <laughs> to run Pendragon, right? It's like, Look at me. I ended up as the line editor of the game, you know? Um, but, um, you know, you, it, the the game itself does a lot of that heavy lifting for you. Um, you you start playing Pendragon and you don't even have to know a whole lot about the tropes of Arthurian literature because your characters are going to tell you what those tropes are through playing. You know, you're, can you you're, can we give gonna, an example? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, oh, absolutely. I mean, you're you're going to end up with you know uh, these experiences of uh, tragic love affairs and you know, unbridled um, passions of both love and hate and, you know, unrequited romance. And and that's just on the social side of things, right? Right. And then you're also going to have the epic fights, the epic battles that you're going to remember for the rest of your life, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and also the epic deaths that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Um, It it really is just absolutely remarkable. I've, I've seen it happen any number of times at my table, somebody you know kind of starting out on a, on a particular arc with their character and watching it take these unexpected turns of you know triumph or tragedy and and you know just sort of 
almost channeling these characters, you know, yeah. like in a way that surprises everyone at the table, you know. Um, yeah, it's it it really just it really delivers so consistently, which is you know why people say it's a perfect role playing game. Well, yeah, and we, and now granted, we could spend we could do a four hour podcast just on this thesis, right? Um, and uh, I'm not going to do that to you, um, but can, can we? Can you? For somebody who's never played Pendragon, can we pick out a great example of where Greg designed something mechanically that then supports the story, that then then it is specifically designed to tell a specific type of story? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the core uh, mechanic or the core system in Pendragon is the traits and passions uh, mechanic. So your traits, Pendragon characters do not have an IQ or intelligence attribute. Uh, rather, they have, uh, I, like to, I like to say, the traits and passions are a description of their sort of mental and emotional landscape, right? Um, so the traits are, uh, you know, a set of paired um, qualitative descriptors that are then given numerical assignments. So you might be... Um, you know, energetic 14, lazy six, they're diametrically opposed. They always add up to 20. And these are, these are your oracles in the game. So if you're wondering, is my character going to be one of the first people up in the morning? I'm going to roll energetic. Oh, I failed energetic. Let me roll lazy. Oh, I critical success on that. I'm sleeping in, you know, and then you get a check to lazy. And then in the winter phase, maybe your lazy goes up by a point. So now you're a little lazier than you were before, you know? So as you play over time, your characters kind of grow in that way. Also, you know, the GM, if you're just playing your character is lazy, the GM may say, check your lazy, you know, and you yeah. know, you don't even roll for it. Right. And then of course there are um, like tests in the game, right? Cause that's very Arthurian, right? Do you, do you have the uh, sort of, you know, uh, moral or ethical or spiritual, um, you know, makeup uh, to pass the, through the flaming gate without being burned, you know, and then you're, you're going to roll for that. Um, so those are traits and they're a great way to kind of direct your role playing, you know, and, so, and, and the higher your trait eventually gets to a point where you have to act. Like if you are, if you have a, a reckless of 20, you know, I had a whole situation one time where the knights were sent as, as uh, on a diplomatic mission to a rival court and, uh, you know, they had a bit of a beef with the local lord themselves, you know, and so uh, they were they were kind of champing at the bit, you know, but there's oh, but there's hospitality, guys. You can't violate the hospitality rules. And I said, OK, well, you know, and someone's like, oh, but I really want to attack that guy. I said, all right, well, why don't you roll reckless then? Let's see. Let's see if you can hold back. And they critically succeeded on their reckless and ended up chopping off the guy's arm, you know, and like that just became kind of a thing, uh, you know, which then leads into passions because passions are uh, basically, as the name implies, you know, something your character feels very deeply about and it's love of your family. It's uh, uh, homage to your Lord. It's uh, your own sense of hospitality and your honor as a knight, you know, and it can also be things like love of a specific person or hate of a specific person. So for example, the knight who got his arm chopped off, he survived. And he generated a hate passion towards the uh, the player knight in question, you know, so that later on when they meet, the player knight with the hate passion is gonna is gonna act on that more, yeah. most likely, you know. So and and the really fun thing about the passion mechanic is that if you fumble the role on your passion, you go mad, 
And wow. this is something that happens in Arthurian literature all the time. Lancelot's always running off into the woods because Guinevere's rejected him or, or humiliated him in public or whatever. And, uh, you know, or, or various, uh, various other knights, you know, just kind of going missing for a time because they're out of their minds with, with grief or with, you know, just uh, a general, general uh, ardor of their passion. And um, so, you know, it's, it just drives these, these experiences, you know, um, and then you can use your passions also to, to boost your skills. So you can, you can become impassioned and then just really start, you know, wrecking the place basically. You know? <laughs> so what it sounds to me like David, and tell me if I'm capturing this right, it sounds like that the game just spreads kindling all over the place kindling for the player kindling for the gm kindling for the other players playing with you and then it's just a matter of you know who's going to throw the match right and 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 it's very interesting and and the idea that um instead of imposing a story but but allowing the dice to be a part of that and and i I love that idea of you know roll your lazy and let's see what happens and and uh you know i want to chop off the arm well let's roll and see what happens and then leading to stories that's absolutely fascinating absolutely fascinating um and i think it's huge your point about you don't have to have a doctorate in authorian literature in order to enjoy this and it sounds like that mechanically uh greg has made it easier yeah, hundred percent. I mean, uh, uh, Pendragon itself is is actually a, a wonderful teaching tool. It's it's one of Greg's greatest uh, legacies. Actually, is not just the game design itself, but the fact that he synthesized all these disparate threads of Arthurian legend into one cohesive narrative. Uh, uh, Lamort d'Artour is 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 the the basis of the game's uh, setting and timeline, but he's bringing in stuff from from medieval romances. He's bringing in stuff from actual sixth century uh, Britain. He's he's even bringing in, you know, T.H. White, Mists of Avalon, you know, all these, uh, uh, you know, 19th century Victorian Arthuriana. It's all in there and it, it all makes sense. It, it's not just a hodgepodge, you know, it all, everything plays off of everything else. It's, it's really quite an amazing uh, achievement, honestly. So I'm getting a sense you like the game, David. I'm starting to pick that yeah, up I'm, a little I'm bit. Partial um, to it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when is it put in front of you as a possibility to be a line editor for it, or did you chase it down? So I okay. So yeah, like after I'd written the Berlin book and I was I was doing more Pendragon work, um, you know, and and I would see Greg every year at Gen Con, and and we'd be in touch by email in between and and phone calls from time to time, you know, um, I, I started to get this idea, like, well, you know, maybe I could be working on Pendragon, like a lot more, you know? And so I think it was, uh, let me see here, let me get the timeline straight. So Gen Con 2017, I was just chatting with Greg and he, he again would ask me his periodic question, which is where do you see yourself going? Like, what do you want to be working on? And and I, and I said, well, I, I'd like to work on Pendragon like a lot more, actually, you know, and he said, OK, well, you know, he, he said, we'll, we'll see, you know, we'll see what we can do. And um, that was that was basically it. And I think even at the time, I thought, oh, did I say too much? Did I overstep? <laughs> you, know, like, you fool! <laughs> exactly, yeah, too presumptuous, you know. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, so then fast forward to June of 2018. I remember this very well. I was uh, I was up late. I'm a bit of a night owl when it comes to working on stuff. You know, it's a good time to to write. You know, 
that's about midnight. My phone starts ringing. And I look at it and it says Greg Stafford. And I'm like, oh, that can't be. Greg wouldn't be calling me at midnight. That's, you know, what, what the hell? So I just let it go to voicemail because I just assumed he just realized he'd called the wrong number or whatever. It was a <laughs> butt dial. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so but then I see a little voicemail flag pop up. So I listen to it. And he's like, hey, I just want to talk to you about something. Uh, you know, call me back in the morning if you're asleep. So I call him right back. And, uh, and he said, I thought you'd be up. And I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, I see, I've seen your emails from two in the morning. I'm like, yep. So, so then he said, look, um, he said, I'm, I'm getting to, to a point where I'm, I'm getting ready to retire and I, I want to make sure my, my work lives on, uh, you know, after my retirement. And so he said, what, you know, would you be interested in running the game for me? Uh, once I've retired and, and we can just do a, a little gradual handoff where I mentor you and on how to do that. And of course, the whole time he's saying this, I'm like on the floor, uh, you know, just absolutely gobsmacked, you know, I, I can't imagine. I mean, you telling me this story, David, gets me a little emotional. I mean, like that's a that's a really big deal. And that ha I can't even imagine how that must have landed. It was it was amazing. I had to go for a walk, you know, yeah. after, right afterwards, you know, and just look at the stars for a bit. Like it was it was. Yeah, I mean, and th this was, you know, three years after I had committed myself to a full time career. And, and, you know, I just I was like, that's it. This is what I was trying to do. So, Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, you know, I mean, the the sort of tragic uh, coda to that is, is that Greg died four months later, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my, amazing. My my wife said it was, you know, it's a bit like Merlin and Arthur where, you know, like, nice, you know, it's like uh, now I'm Arthur going like, where's Merlin? <laughs> you know? Yeah, but, I mean, honestly, I, I I'd had enough years working with Greg and he left so much material, you know, and he was already planning to hand it off. I think that's also something that helped is that he was already in that process of getting ready to hand it off. So uh, and then Chaosium picked up Pendragon at the end of that year. So that's when I came on. <laughs> full-time with Chaosium. That's incredible. That is incredible. So now I'm going to ask uh, another odd question. What the hell does a line editor do? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I always have to explain that, right? <laughs> so a line, editor, a line editor is in charge of the game line. That's the line part of the line editor. So uh, it's my responsibility to sort of guide the development of the game. Uh, so like, uh, for instance, somebody has a pitch, like, you know, Mike Mason's the line editor of Call of Cthulhu. So when I wanted to write the Berlin source book, he's the guy I ended up, you know, getting the contract with talking about it, you know? Um, so, so there's a lot of delegating involved, you know, like, um, just, uh, uh, creating a, a, a production schedule, you know, what's going to be coming out and when, uh, to the best of my you know, abilities to influence that. There's a lot of things that are outside of our hands too, of course, <laughs> sure. you know, but, uh, you know, just kind of penciling in. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just, yeah, content, you know, like, like what is in these products, you know? And then, so that involves actual editing, that involves some writing, that involves, you know, some sometimes I'm writing the whole thing. Sometimes I'm just tweaking the text or adding a section or a chapter or what have you. So it's one of those jobs where you have to wear a lot of different hats. I've, I've had a crash course on art direction because, <laughs> you know, I ended up art directing the, the starter set that will be coming out for the new edition. Uh, and then we're bringing on a, a, 
separate art director because it really is a, a full-time job, but it was great to have that experience because it helped me to define the visual aesthetic of the new edition, right? So like now I can point our art director to the art that we've commissioned for the starter set and say, more like this, please, you know, so. So we have a sense, and you've done a great job, David, of really explaining uh, kind of the long the long story that happens, right? From takes a while, and it, it, you know who else uh, did a great job with this? Lynn Hardy. We had Lynn Hardy on, mm. and Lynn was talking about the children of fear and just the mm. long journey that that book took before it finally came out, and uh, you said it as well. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. When will I start seeing David's fingerprints? So mm -hmm. when will I start buying Pendragon? and really starting to see you has it happened yet um or is that coming um and we don't have to talk about i don't talk about anything that's coming down the line but i'm trying to feel i'm trying to get a sense of when in that span of production that we really start seeing your influence sure sure well i mean part of part of my particular iteration as line editor of pendragon is i'm sort of the custodian of greg's legacy here you know i, I literally have boxes of his paper archives in my office right now is three feet away from me you know eventually i hope those will go to a library or, or an archive collection of some place but you know i i got those after he passed i scanned them in they've been digitized you know um and these are things going all the way back to playtest sessions from 1983 you know <laughs> so um but uh in terms of my fingerprints like yeah i mean you know Obviously, I have my preferences, I have my biases, you know, and, and uh, like, for instance, one of the things that we're going to see with the new edition is more refocusing the game on the era of King Arthur, mm. because right now, the way that fifth edition was set up, uh, most people's Pendragon games actually happen in during the reign of King Uther, um, you know, and that's just that's just how it worked out, you know, but I'm like, no, no, this game about King Arthur Pendragon and, right. and his knights, right? So let's let's get that refocused. So the short answer to your question is once S6 edition is rolling out, those are the projects I've been most heavily involved with. I have, you know, I wrote a, a thing called the Book of Feasts for Pendragon that's also been very well received. And that's that's all me, pretty much. I, I had a, a, a co-designer on the on the feast system itself who also helped write some of the feast cards. But in terms of like setting that up, it was based off of some house rules that I was using in my home <laughs> game, right? So, um, so there's a little bit out, that's out there already. And then yeah, but sixth edition really. That's is, cool. Is you'll see that. Yeah, that's very very cool. All right, so last question, David, and then we're mm -hmm. gonna do some plugs. Um, and this is a question I ask all my creators: is mm -hmm. um, what are you consuming now that you did not create that you're loving? So this could be other role-playing games. This could be board games, video games, movies, or whatever. But I, I'm always interested about what gets other creators excited. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I've been doing recently is kind of going back to my, going back to my gaming roots uh, a lot. So I've been, I've been playing a lot of games that either are from, the 90s or uh are sort of derived from the 90s you know so like i just wrapped up a cyberpunk red campaign nice. for example um my wife and i enjoy playing uh vampire the masquerade that's like kind of our 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 one-on-one our -on -one system of choice these days you know um and yeah i've just oh i've, I've been kind of reconnecting with with the miniatures wargaming hobby a lot mm -hmm. uh recently I, I i've got a, a good friend who's set up a, a discord server for like kind of local folks to get excited about like age of sigmar and you know warhammer forty thousand and so forth you know that's been a lot of fun so um 
and then I know this is like kind of work related, but you know, I, I, I just saw the green Knight, which was really exciting. So, you know, <laughs> how, how I have not seen it. Um, and I, but I've heard good things. Was it, was it good? Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that either has, uh, it's like 50% five-star reviews and 50% one-star reviews. Right. And those are always the movies I want to see. Right. <laughs> right. <It's> like, <laughs> Something's <laughs> happening there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I, uh, on, on an aesthetic level, I absolutely adored it. I, I love, it's something I really want to see more of in the future. And I hope we see more of in the future is really good treatments of Arthurian, uh, legends, uh, cause we haven't had any really good ones for a long time. Yep. Unfortunately, uh, I think the green Knight is one of those though, that I think nice. it, it, it will stand as a, as a good reference point, certainly from a visual standpoint, I think people will get a lot out of that. You know, I have a couple quibbles with uh, how they wrote the Gawain character, just from an Arthurian nerd perspective. But as far as Hollywood goes, I think they did a really good job. <laughs> but there were times where you're pushing your glasses up with your finger. And <laughs> um, actually, I think you'll find that. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, so, David, obviously, we're going to have links to all of the uh, Pendragon stuff um, and uh, here. So those of you that are listening right now that have obviously gotten excited about the Pendragon, just scroll down. You'll be able to click the link and uh, everything um, for that will be there. But in general, David, where can people go to get more David? <laughs> well, um, I, I do have kind of a moribund uh, blog at the, at the moment. I haven't really been able to to do much blogging over the last couple of years. But uh, yeah, I do have a I do have a website, sirlarkins.com. And Sir Larkins is just kind of my my handle on Twitter. Uh, you know, feel free to follow me there. I always reblog Pendragon material there and uh, occasionally offer some some original material as well. And um, yeah, otherwise, I'm, I'm just lurking quietly behind the scenes. All right. That's fantastic. Well, David, this was a huge favor to me, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, this, this is great. Thanks so much for having me on. And for those of you that sat around, listened to this whole thing, I appreciate you too. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. So if you've ever wanted to fanboy about Mr. Stafford, you get a chance to do it. <laughs> thing um hands down the most common name that comes up as i talk to creators hands yeah down. yeah um and what's um interesting for me is i took a 20-year break um from oh, rope okay. okay so so the, all, the pendragon greg all of that was happening when i was not involved and the part of the reason i'm doing this insider insight series on my podcast is it's 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 like an archaeological dig for me to go back and find out what happened over these 20 years so like super excited to to, to get into this so, that's awesome um, yeah i appreciate you doing it of course all right i'll bring us back uh, oh hey are you still here wow um well the episode is over 
But if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.